A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads, The Consolation of Philosophy. Lady Philosophy has been walking us through the various false routes to happiness, and this week we revisit the question of power. Let's have a listen and afterwards I'll offer some thoughts. Enjoy! Well, then, does sovereignty and the intimacy of kings prove able to confer power? Why, surely does not the happiness of kings endure forever? And yet antiquity is full of examples, these days also, of kings whose happiness has turned into calamity. How glorious a power which is not even found effectual for its own preservation! But if happiness has its source in sovereign power, is not happiness diminished and misery inflicted in its stead, insofar as that power falls short of completeness? Yet, however widely human sovereignty be extended, there must still be more peoples left, over whom each several king holds no sway. Now, at whatever point the power on which happiness depends ceases, powerlessness steals in and makes wretchedness. So, by this way of reckoning, there must needs be a balance of wretchedness in the lot of the king. The tyrant who had made trial of the perils of his condition figured the fears that haunt a throne under the image of a sword hanging over a man's head. What sort of power, then, is this which cannot drive away the gnawings of anxiety, or shun the stings of terror? Fain would they themselves have lived secure, but they cannot. Then they boast about their power. Dost thou count him to possess power whom thou seest to wish what he cannot bring to pass? Dost thou count him to possess power who encompasses himself with a bodyguard, who fears those he terrifies more than they fear him, who, to keep up the semblance of power, is himself at the mercy of his slaves? Need I say anything of the friends of kings, when I show the royal dominion itself so utterly and miserably weak? Why, oft times the royal power in its plenitude brings them low, 
oft-times involves them in its fall. Nero drove his friend and preceptor Seneca to the choice of the manner of his death. Antoninus exposed Papinianus, who was long powerful at court, to the swords of the soldiery. Yet each of these was willing to renounce his power. Seneca tried to surrender his wealth also to Nero and go into retirement, but neither achieved his purpose. When they tottered, their very greatness dragged them down. What manner of thing, then, is this power which keeps men in fear while they possess it, which when thou art fain to keep, thou art not safe, and when thou desirest to lay it aside, thou canst not rid thyself of it? Are friends any protection who have been attached by fortune, not by virtue? Nay, him who good fortune has made a friend, ill fortune will make an enemy. And what plague is more effectual to do hurt than a foe of one's own household? Who on power sets his aim, first must his own spirit tame. He must shun his neck to thrust neath the unholy yoke of lust. For though India's far-off land bow before his wide command, utmost thool homage pay, if he cannot drive away haunting care and black distress. In his power, he's powerless. So in this chapter, philosophy reprises the question of power. In the last visit to power, in Book 2, Chapter 6, philosophy explains how power is a false substitute for virtue. Here, she argues that it is also a false substitute for happiness. She might have had an easier time making her argument here if she'd stuck to the obvious Aristotelian syllogism. If virtue is the only true route to happiness, and power is a false virtue, then power must also be a false friend to happiness. Instead, she takes us on a circuitous journey through a series of specious reasons that, in my view, actually betray Boethius's own unresolved psychological commitment to power. For her first argument, philosophy begins with the case of the One. If true happiness is something that is complete and self-sufficient, then whatever confers it must itself be complete and self-sufficient. But nobody on earth has absolute power, which is to say, power over all things and all people. So the degree to which power is finite is the degree to which it is insufficient to happiness, and, by implication, some other necessary component must fill in the gap. But since a true unity cannot be constructed of reducible parts, then this cannot be true happiness. There is a common complaint here in the literature. Why should absolute happiness be the standard? In other words, why isn't some maximum amount of finite happiness enough to make power both a necessary and sufficient source? But I find this objection to be a weak one. Philosophy herself provides a reasonably plausible reply to this objection, right in the text. At whatever point the power on which happiness depends ceases, here powerlessness steals in and makes wretchedness. In other words, 
Unless power is total, you will be plagued by anxiety and other mental suffering. Why? Because, as she will go on to explain, others will be jealous of what power you do have, and you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. At this point, the reader with a good memory might recall philosophy chastising Boethius in Book 1 for thinking that he deserved, or was even capable of achieving, absolute happiness. Recall how she chided him for thinking that the good life ought not to be fettered by miseries or misfortunes. It is tempting to think that the present argument is a reversal of this earlier counsel. Is philosophy contradicting herself here by implication? Perhaps. On the one hand, we have the contingent world, full of constant change and at best only nearly complete actualizations of each being's true potential. On the other hand, here, we have Lady Philosophy beckoning toward a fully actualized potential, as she argues against earthly power being the source of that absolute. But here's the thing. Is she talking about an earthly state of absolute happiness here? I don't think so. As we cycle through each of the false forms of happiness and knock them down, we're going to eventually be left with nothing but the transcendent. In the Christian tradition of the early church, access to that transcendent state is facilitated by only one thing. Reunion with the Godhead through the passage opened by Christ. It's interesting to note that Boethius is never explicit about this in the Consolation, despite the fact that he was regionally famous for his commentaries on the Trinity and Catholic doctrine. Here in the Consolation, he chose instead to couch that yearning toward transcendence explicitly in the theodicy of Plato's Timaeus, which we'll be visiting extensively in just a few more episodes. Why does he do this? It's not clear to me what his intent was. One speculation that comes to mind is that Boethius was trying to ensure that controversy would not doom his work. You see, while they were both Christian, Theodoric was an Arian, while Boethius was a Trinitarian. Could it be that Boethius was falling back on the Platonic myths because he thought his text would have had a better chance of surviving, being burned, or buried after his execution? After all, the Arian heresy was a controversy that led to extreme violence at times. Although the First Council of Constantinople in 381 had made Arianism anathema, it was still fiercely defended amongst the Ostrogoths, the tribe from which Theodoric came. What's more, Theodoric harbored a deep resentment for Constantinople, his former foster home and childhood. And of course, Boethius had been thrown in prison precisely for suspicion of conspiring with Constantinople. Still, given how Book 1 of the Consolation is already loaded with highly charged political accusations, this avoidance theory of mine seems weak. If Book 1 didn't get the text burned, probably nothing else would have after that. And speaking of politically charged accusations, Boethius also takes the opportunity in this chapter to make another thinly veiled parallel between Theodoric and Nero and between himself and such luminary figures as Seneca and Papinian. 
These not-so-subtle allusions leave me thinking that Boethius has still not quite come to psychological grips with his own situation, despite the fact that we're only a step or two away from apprehending the summum bonum. Papinian, 142-212 AD, was probably the most respected legal mind of late Rome. He literally lost his head at the hands of Antoninius in an attempt to mend the relationship between Antoninius and his brother Geta. This has vague parallels to the court drama Boethius was caught up in when he was arrested. The story of Seneca, 4 BC to 65 AD, is even more famous. Nero twice rejected Seneca's request to retire, held him on for another three years, and then on suspicion of involvement in the Pisonian conspiracy, forced Seneca to commit suicide. Seneca's story has clear parallels to Socrates' demise, and Boethius has already compared himself at least once to Socrates in this work. Knowing both of these stories so well, why would they not have warded Boethius off seeking a central place in the court of Theodoric in the first place? Perhaps he thought, this time it'll be different. Or was he not even thinking about Seneca at all when he accepted the consulship? This seems unlikely. This chapter, therefore, harbors the potent lingering scent of Fortuna. Boethius knows he was rolling the dice, and he's still stinging from the fact that they came up boxcars. Who could blame him? Finally, I want to leave you all with a question. Why is history so full of examples of smart men being drawn to the sphere of strong men, with universally tragic consequences? Socrates was condemned to death by the Greek assembly, Plato was sold into slavery by Dion of Syracuse, Aristotle was exiled by the same Greek chorus that murdered Socrates, and of course here we have both the example of Seneca forced into suicide by Nero, and Boethius himself imprisoned and executed by Theodoric. There are dozens more examples throughout history as well. It seems to me there is some sort of living allegory here about the relationship between the intellect and the will being played out in real life repeatedly through these relationships. I don't have a fully fleshed out theory to explain this observation or to explain my speculation about living allegories, but here is one possible suggestion. What are the objects of will and intellect? What do they aim at? Power and knowledge, yes? The intellect seeks to know. The will seeks to act in the world, to actualize the intentions of the ego. Could there be a missing component here? What about the heart? Can we agree that the object of the heart is love and beauty? If so, then perhaps we finally have a complete picture. Intellect united to heart subjugates the will to the good. The will acts in accordance with truth and beauty, where the master value is love. Where there is no love, however, then the will is unfettered, the heart is discarded, and the intellect is made the instrument of power. But power is a self-consuming objective, as Lady Philosophy has so eloquently shown us thus far. 
So in its unbounded pursuit to subjugate the world, the will ultimately consumes and destroys the intellect and finally itself. This would account, at least in part, for the self-destructive penchant of both philosophers and rulers. But I'm sure there's probably a simpler explanation. That's for you to decide. Next week we move on to glory again, as we round out the apophatic dissolution of the false pursuits of happiness. See you then!